Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the PGA of Alberta podcast series. My name is Troy Mills, and I will be your host today from the home of Canada's number one golf resort, the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge. On today's episode, we will introduce you to a young, driven, and innovative golf architect from Canmore, Alberta, currently working down in Winter Park, Florida, Mr. Riley Johns. We will discuss the wonderful world of golf architecture, uh, where Riley sees the uh, industry moving forward after a few positive years uh, with a negative impact with COVID-19 and, and seeing the rounds go up and we'll see where the demand is on new golf courses being uh, designed and built. Uh, we will also discuss uh, what it's like to design a facility from start to finish, discuss some of his uh, current and, and past projects, uh, along with his time working with some of the great designers, uh, Tom Doak and, and Ben Crenshaw to name a few. Uh, all the way to his 2014 Dr. Alistair McKenzie uh, Lido Award winner. I uh, truly appreciate you tuning in to today's episode and, and really hope you enjoy the show today. Hey Troy, thanks for having me. Just a little background uh, on Riley. Uh, he was born and raised in Canmore, Alberta, so a local Alberta boy. Uh, introduced to the, the game as a teenager while uh, working at the range, uh, picking golf balls at Canmore uh, Golf and Country Club. Not sure if Mr. Cook was there back in the day, but uh, essentially worked for free access uh, to golf and played several times a week. Uh, went on to working at the uh, turf care team at Stewart Creek Golf and Country Club. Uh, graduated in landscape, landscape architecture and environmental design at the University of Guelph in, in 2010. Uh, he's interned under Tom Doak in Renaissance Golf. Uh, he established his Canadian-based golf design company, uh, Integrative Golf Design, in 2013. And pretty lucky to have uh, worked all over the world, uh, Canada and the United States as well. Uh, the recipient of a very prestigious award, the 2014 Alistair McKenzie Lido Prize. We'll speak a little bit more on that later. Uh, he's been in the industry uh, for over 20 years now. His first golf build was at uh, Delacour, just outside northeast of Calgary. <clears throat> Lifelong student and player of the game, uh, fascinated by golf uh, course architecture and history, and uh, loving husband, beautiful wife, and two amazing sons. So uh, lucky to uh, call Canmore his home and a real treat to have him on the show today. Um, you know, we'll dive right into it, Riley, and, and just want to ask you, what's the that moment you knew you wanted to get into the design aspect uh, of a game of golf? And, you know, is there anyone that kind of influenced you over the years uh, to put you in that, that good direction? Yeah, Troy. Um, you know, it was never really one moment that kind of uh, introduced me to, you know, the fact that there was an actual profession in, in called golf course design. So for me, it was it was a completely uh, you know new a new, a new avenue, a new uh, a career opportunity that I didn't really know existed. I just kind of fell into it. So like you said, I just started in the golf industry in Canmore there, to, you know, and I fell in love with the game. I played quite a bit in junior golf and all that, and then ended up working up at Stewart Creek uh, when they first opened to kind of help in with some of the uh, kind of the later kind of growing duties and ended up working in the maintenance uh, with the maintenance staff there with, with Sean and, and Dwayne who are still up there and 
actually ended up working in the kitchen there as well. So, you know, I had an entire summer up there. I was just completely surrounded by the game and uh, just really fell in love with it. And, and, you know, I'd done some landscaping and some land surveying and all these kind of different things around Canmore um, as for summer jobs prior to that. And so I had, I had an ability to, to run equipment and, and um, you know, understand kind of spatially projects. And so they kind of put me into the, <laughs> I was in the, in the projects division, so to speak, at, the, at Stewart Creek. And so I was, you know, building whether that's staircases or building nursery greens or putting greens and, and all those kind of things, little rock walls here and there, their buffers needed to be repaired. You know, I'd hop on the excavator and help with those kind of projects. And I really enjoyed that aspect of, of, of golf more than, than the, uh, the daily, uh, you know, the mowing routine. And so I kind of, I kind of enjoyed that and then had an opportunity to go work with a, uh, a golf contractor in Western Canada, uh, Radomski golf. And, um, like you said, my first project, with them was uh, was at Delacour in 2000 uh, in 2001 uh, 2001 I believe and then uh, I just fell in love with it I just I you know that was a with the architect was Harold Seshnik a uh, very uh, talented golfer in his own right in, in Alberta and uh, I learned a lot a lot from him on the opportunities and potential of of the of the industry and I just never looked back so um, just kind of you know everyone kind of kept guiding me and, 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 and introducing me to the next uh, evolution and, and what would eventually become a, a career in, in golf course design. And a great, uh, a great place to kind of get your feet wet working at Stewart Creek, living in Canmore, being in the mountains. Um, so kind of finding that passion and that drive to, to kind of put you where you are today. You know, that was, you know, 20 years ago. And, and uh, you look at some of the courses you've done, some of the projects you've worked on and the people you've worked alongside. Um, you know, a great, great spot to really kind of start things off. So really appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, I'm going to ask the big question, um, dive right in here and correct me if I'm wrong, but obviously there was a big boom in, in golf course design and facilities being open from the eighties to the two thousands. Um, and there was a, you know, a number of years where that conversation of an oversaturation of, of facilities and, um, you know, more communities after the economic downturn, looking for more parks or, uh, development of, of communities and houses. My question is to you, do you think, uh, you know, COVID-19, a, a negative situation, which had a really positive impact on our game of golf, um, do you think that's going to turn things around and, and see an increase in, in more people looking at uh, acquiring and building more facilities and then in turn reaching out to designers and architects like yourself for uh, the projects? I think so. I think so. Um, how long lasting it'll be I don't know I hope it's not a, a, a bubble um, but you know golf is very cyclical as you as you alluded to in the 80s and 90s it's, it's really um, you know it, it's it's connected economically to to uh, you know how well people are, are doing and, and through the pandemic um, you know completely different factors brought more people to the game uh, introduced people to the game maybe brought people back to the game who um, hung their clubs up, um, brought families to the game. So I, I think it brought a lot of uh, average play to the game, which, which I think is really good, really healthy. Uh, it also helped uh, golf clubs and, and facilities and, and even municipal golf courses to understand exactly the value of, of the product that they, they have and the offering. And, and so I think that was really good because I think there was a bit of a, 
uh, an orchestrated assault on golf to redevelop it and repurpose it. And, you know, golf's never really had a powerful lobby group to counteract um, some of those narratives that uh, that had been, uh, you know, pro-development or, uh, you know, politically charged. So, so I think that's good. And then regarding new builds, we're seeing it already. Uh, you know, the, you know, with the pandemic brought the largest transfer of wealth, uh, upward transfer of wealth to the, to the, to the, uh, call it the billionaire class, the millionaire class, you name it, you know, and so now with, with, with their, uh, you know, with their, with their excess and money, they're, they're starting to buy golf courses and, and redevelop them. They're buying land and, and planning on building new golf courses. You know, I'm down here in Florida, and the waiting list on every every private golf club is is a mile long, and so there's a huge pent up demand right now. And not only that, this this upper class who has really profited from the pandemic is now looking at uh, diversifying th- those monies, you know, out of equities perhaps and, and into real estate, right? And so now real estate is um, starting to see a big boom, and when real estate booms, so does golf. So it's all really interlinked. It's it's really tough to say how long lasting this will be. But from what I've heard uh, across North America at the least, and, and you know, actually around the world is courses are flush with cash. Their waiting lists are as long as they've ever been. And, and participation numbers are skyrocketing. So that's just, uh, that's just a combination that leads to more golf development. Um, hopefully it's sustainable. Is there a particular part of the world that you're seeing more interest from some of these individuals, some of these companies that are, are trying to obtain land, uh, real estate to, to make new golf courses or a particular uh, part in the globe that, that you've noticed or heard um, over the last couple of years? Yeah, the U.S. The U.S. is certainly leading leading that uh, leading that charge. They uh, there's, I mean, Keith and I got probably six calls just in the last month about potential new builds, all in the United States, and so it's it's certainly centered in the United States. Um, you know, it's, it, right now it's really difficult. I think just the United States being the most open country right now in terms of, of, of business and restrictions and mandates and all that, it's a little bit more attractive for, for investment. So I don't know, uh, if Canada or other countries are, are going to see the boom perhaps once, uh, once they finally open up. Um, but, uh, yeah, right now it's the United States. Awesome. Um, you know, getting a little bit away from that, uh, obviously the popularity in the last couple of years and, and more so that conversation over the last five, 10 years, uh, with golfers now hitting it longer, um, you know, the, the push to, to consistently hit that ball 350, 360 yards. Are you, um, seeing more facilities, not necessarily new builds, but other facilities looking at, at trying to, to lengthen, uh, certain holes or do you, um, kind of see more of the direction of shot shaping and, and hitting those shots opposed to, you know, just lengthening the hole, um, maybe smaller dog legs, maybe better bunkering. Um, what is the views from, you know, yourself and other architects? Are you, again, looking to, to lengthen holes or in that new design? Or how do you guys go about that with all this chat about hitting it longer and courses not uh, being long enough? Yeah, I mean that's that's certainly the uh, you know it's a, it's a hot topic, but also a very nuanced one. There's a lot of different, you know, it really depends on the club and the scenario. Um, 
unfortunately, it's 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 not a lot. The length off the tee isn't uh, isn't universal. It's really uh, the players that can actually get the ball compression and have club head speeds are the ones that are actually taking advantage of the equipment. And so we're seeing a discrepancy or a wider variety in in teeing lengths that we've never seen before. So the back tees need to be even further back, but yet, you know, the, the other players haven't really uh, realized those gains in length. And so we're, yes, we're adding tees, but we're not doing it at the sacrifice of forward tees, but now we're adding, now clubs are having, you know, instead of four sets of tees, three sets of tees, they've got five sets of tees or six sets of tees, sometimes seven or eight. Like at a certain point, we're, you're spending a lot of money on maintaining tees. Um, and so, and so that's one factor. The other factor too, is, that we're trying to reconcile is, it's, it's, it's not so much that they're hitting it, uh, further. It's they're hitting it further offline as well. Right. And, um, safety is becoming a huge issue. Um, and that's, that's another factor that we have to, we have to reconcile. And so it's not necessarily, it's angle as well. So that the angle of that T and, you know, we're seeing a lot of netting having to put up. Like, for instance, we did a driving range at uh, Point Grey in Vancouver uh, two years back. And, you know, some of the poles we have to get up 110 feet tall, right? And so there's a lot of a lot of kind of costs associated with the ball going longer. One of them being, as you mentioned, uh, renovating or extending golf holes, altering bunker strategy and, and placements to, to kind of help uh, deter certain shots you know, having to put up netting to protect housing or, or other players. And, you know, so it's a multi-pronged approach. Um, but in, at the end of the day, you, you know, regardless of what you do, if you, if you change the dog leg, make it short, if you change the bunker strategy, guys are still going to try to bomb it. And um, um, all we can really do is just try to make the, the courses as fun and engaging as possible and, and hope that players, um, you know, play it, play it, uh, you know, safely and, and to their abilities sort of thing and, and, and really try to uh, mitigate any sort of safety issues that are that are kind of starting to be exposed, especially on these older courses that, you know, we don't really have much more room to, to stretch them out. So it's certainly an ongoing discussion and there's a lot of different ideas out there. And um, it's certainly on, uh, you know, for, for, for renovation work and restoration work, it's certainly at the forefront of an architect's thinking when it when it comes to doing any sort of course modifications awesome you know i i really you know agree with you know two things you said in there fun and enjoyability um you know that's that that really to me resonates with some of the new recreational golfers that we've uh, got to the game in the last couple of years and um i think if those two key points are made um right from the get-go you're, you're going to have a successful uh, facility design you know, it kind of rolls into to my next question. I'm, I'm sure we could speak for a couple hours on, on this topic, but, you know, can you walk us through um, some of the steps involved from kind of start to finish to, you know, uh, creating a golf course? So from the design architecture side of things, um, you know, as a, a summary would be great. I know we can, we can chat for a few hours there, but uh, yeah, just kind of share uh, with our viewership what that's like. Sure. So, I mean, it, it's a, a little bit different depending on if you're working with a plastic course and your objective is restoration versus a, an existing golf course that's asked for renovation or remodel work versus uh, a raw piece of ground that you're going to turn into a golf course. 
Um, you know, restoration work, you're really trying to figure out what, you know, the original architect's intent was and using historic aerials and um, any sort of uh, historical information that you can gather, you try to, you know, collect and aggregate that and try to come up with, uh, you know, a site inventory on what was there, what was the architect's intent, what makes sense for today's game. Um, and, 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 and then you work with the club on figuring out uh, what blend of restor pure restoration or authentic restoration versus modification, modernization, whether that be for safety or, or what have you. And so, so that would be the process with regarding that um, for, the, for, the, for the restoration. And then a remodel or a renovation, you really just try to find what the goals and objectives of the club are. Um, you know, who's this golf course going to be played by? Um, try to get a little understanding of the membership and um, and kind of what the direction the club wants to go. Where do they want to be in 10, 15 years time, right? And so you, then you kind of uh, reverse engineer their their wish list and their and their goals and objectives to then translate translate that into the architecture. Um, and uh, you know you try to factor in. You know some key. I mean, the, the the holy trinity in golf, so to speak, is you know playability, architecture, and maintenance. Right? Those things have to be in balance. Otherwise, you know you're going to have uh, you're going to have issues. And so so that's you kind of work with the club regarding that, and um, um, and and just try to really uh, translate your golf architecture concepts and ideas to fit the the realities of the site and also the goals and objectives of the client. Um, with a raw build or a brand new build. I mean that's that's always the most fun because you're take you're it's a you're you're essentially trying to solve a problem while creating a problem. So solving a problem would okay. be essentially environmental factors, um, you know, how to best route a golf course, and and, and the routing is essentially um, the sequence of holes and how it navigates the landforms and the and the particular landscapes. So you're trying to take players to to maybe high points in the property where there's nice vistas. Maybe you're going to take them down to a, a creek and then back up to maybe an area where you have a different vista. Maybe it's along a coastline. And so you're really trying to help the player, the golfer, experience all that the, the particular landscape has to offer. And by doing that, they're just essentially going on a journey. And golf is the is the game they play while they're on that journey. And so the routing is absolutely the most critical component in golf course architecture and it has to take in everything from soils to weather to engineering to you know feasibility and and there's so many different environmental kind of factors and then you got to translate to well you need you know part 72 you need to have some part five some part three some part fours you want to create your transitions from your greens to your tees so that it's a it's a walkable experience or a flowing experience and so you have to really factor in um, many different things, but the the building on a raw piece of ground is, is certainly, uh, for me, the most um, rewarding and, and exciting part of of this of this profession, craft, whatever you want to call it. And uh, you know, trying to trying to place a golf hole on the ground or within the landscape to to fit seamlessly in with the natural surroundings blending your work out to, to, so people can't really see where your work began and where nature, you know, yeah. has been left off. And, and so you really try to fit everything together. 
And uh, that's kind of the craft part of, of it is, is making it so if you do have to move some earth or you have to maybe be a little bit more heavy handed to fit a golf hole into place, you don't want it to be perceivable by the player. And so that's kind of where the, the art the component of, of golf course architecture really, uh, really comes into play. I think Alisher McKenzie said it really well, and, and this quote may be misattributed to him, but nonetheless, it's a good quote. He says, golf architecture is a profession that demands a rare blend of characteristics, the heart of an artist, the mind of an engineer, and the soul of a golfer. And I, and I think that sums it up pretty well. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a great kind of parlay into in, in the next topic. And, you know, Dr. McKenzie is he's just a genius in his own mind back in the day. Um, so many phenomenal designs over in, in the UK, over here in North America. Um, you know, Augusta National with uh, Bobby Jones to kind of forefront. But in 2014, um, you were the Alistair McKenzie Lido Prize winner. And, and a little background for, for our viewers, um, you know, listening today. It's an award that's um, given out annually by the members of the uh, Dr. McKenzie Society uh, to honor his memory and, and recognize the design potential of an upcoming architect. Uh, so in 1914, uh, Dr. McKenzie's drawing of a, a two-shot hole uh, for the, the Lido golf course on, on Long Island, it's no longer in existence, um, you know, came in first place in a competition within uh, Country Life magazine. So this, the sketch itself, shown separately, proved to uh, be an important step in, in developing his reputation. Um, you know, in his books, Golf Architecture and the Spirit of St. Andrews, um, expressed that uh, design philosophy. So the, the competition itself is, um, again, restricted to the design of a, a one-shot par three hole the year you won. Um, and uh, needed to be elaborate in, you know, how the hole would be constructed and played. So, you know, a, a great, um, you know, feather in your cap there winning that award. But, you know, what was your design like on that? Uh, what were your thoughts going in? How did you get those, uh, those inspirational juices flowing to, uh, to come up with that sketch? Um, yeah, so that was the that was the first year that they that they I, I actually competed in that competition I think three or four times prior prior to, okay. to winning it and um, very very you know lucky and fortunate but also very interesting timing to have won it a hundred years after Mackenzie had won it but my inspiration was real. I was in New Zealand with my with my wife and we were traveling around and, and, and I came up with the idea about wouldn't it be neat that if they had uncovered, you know, Mackenzie was known for doing the 19th, you know, 19th hole or adding some, uh, an, an extra hole to his course just to get you back there. It was like Augusta used to have. And so, so it would be kind of a fun concept to, to do a 19th hole at Cypress Point as if you discovered it. Um, you know, after after someone had found it through in the attic through some records or an old plan or map or something like that. So I kind of attached the story to it. But the, the hole itself was, you know, it was it was pretty straightforward. It was uh, it was more of a uh, really really getting the bunkering to to be the story behind the green. Just just a visual eye popping par three golf hole with a little bit of a back shelf that had this kind of little bit of a partially concealed kind of bowl in the back and um you know very very uh very approachable but um but really sitting along the coastline it was more um rather than trying to take any of alistair mckenzie's principles regarding the par threes um you know i, I kind of took his ability to take a golf hole and, and and make it look like it was found make it look like it was always part of that landscape 
Um, and so that's kind of the, the key, the key principle I took and, and used for the whole. And so, so it's got a lot of visual, uh, we'll call it eye candy. And, awesome. uh, I'm, I look and forward a story to seeing that it. at some point. I tried, <laughs> I tried to research and see if I could see it, but I, uh, Google was no success. So you'll have to show that to uh, you next time we play I'll, around. I'll, I'll, I'll send, I'll send you the, uh, I'll send you, I'll send you an image. It's funny. I actually, it's, it's been almost 10 years now, so I actually haven't thought about it in a while, but I appreciate you bringing back the good memories because I was very lucky to have been flown out to Ireland for the Mackenzie Society gathering to uh, La Hinch and um, played at La Hinch for, you know, a week basically. And it was one of the most memorable experiences of my life and uh, really, really an eye-opening experience to, to go play that course and meet with all those uh, Mackenzie members. So um, certainly fond memories uh, surrounding the Lido Prize. And, you know, Mackenzie, uh, obviously, uh, you know, hosting the podcast here in Jasper, I I got to mention it at one point, but uh, Mackenzie was out west in the, in the late 20s, 1920s, um, going around taking a look at uh, facilities and, and, and came across Jasper and, and they got a great article, you know, written on a typewriter. Um, and one of the last quotes um, back from September 25th, 1928, when he was here, um, about our 18th hole here at JPL. And uh, this is quoted, the best finish in the world of golf. Um, do you think Mackenzie in those following six years after, you know, looking at some of Stanley Thompson's um, designs and, you know, I, I, you know, firmly feel one of North America's most prolific architects, um, you know, during his time, do you think Mackenzie may have taken a few traits away of, of you know, the bunkering or the natural undulation and applied it to um, some of those facilities over the next six years? So I know he did St. Charles Golf and Country Club and obviously Augusta. Um, before he passed, after he visited Jasper and some of the other Stanley Thompson designs, do you think he uh, took a few things away and, and applied it to those facilities over those next six years? I think it'd be kind of hard not to, really. I mean, uh, the, the, the the craft of golf course architecture has just been a constant evolution, and, and it's the mixing of ideas and 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 philosophies and ideologies that have really created a created the profession as we know it today. Um, you know, back then there wasn't really um, a set of of, of golf architecture, uh, uh, you know, rules or or I don't know what the right word would be, but it, you know they were still figuring things out. Um, and so it was it was you know different things were happening in different places in the world. But then when they started traveling a little bit more, the train and by ship and you know train with the guys to McKenzie. Um, uh, you know, on, on the uh, on the railway there, they he uh, you know the combination of, of of his exposure and experiences on variety of golf courses. You just take a little tidbit of, of information, whether that's a contour on a green or a certain bunker style or a, a routing um, concept, and and you know this is this is what every art architect essentially does. That's why traveling and seeing golf courses around the world is so important. It's because it's a mixing pot of ideas and you come across a similar scenario where you have to problem solve a certain landform or a certain strategy or a certain you know issue and and you go ah you, you go into your memory bank and you go i remember seeing this hole here this is how they overcame that issue right and so you kind of have this catalog of golf holes and, and ideas that you kind of always store in the back of your mind um and and you pull from them constantly i, I know i do and i know every architect really does so, I, I mean, I can't imagine Mackenzie didn't take something away from Jasper. It had such a, 
such a profound impact on him for him to write you know he, he said it was one of the one of the greatest golf courses at that time in the world you know those are it's not small that's not a small uh, accolade to be throwing around especially from you know someone like him and so i think it speaks a to uh um, how good stanley thompson was and you know he doesn't get the recognition he does internationally but but that's okay we you know canada can, yeah, can be we'll proud of him knowing that he here. can he, exactly he can stand on his own in the in the golf architecture world his his courses in canada and beyond uh you know another you know in the united states and other places are, are phenomenal but uh mckenzie's um yeah, for Mackenzie to to not have taken something from Jasper, I don't I don't think that's possible because he uh, now can you attribute his bunker genre and style to, to 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 Thompson? I don't know because I think he saw Jasper. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did he see it before Stanley came back and redid the bunkers? Uh, I think he did. I think it was 26 it, that he was there. Yeah, it was 26 or seven that he was uh, commissioned back from. Uh... Sir Henry Thornton, after uh, Cleopatra, uh, kind of first uh, initial view by by the golfer. So, if I'm not mistaken, it was after. It was in 28. So, um, yeah. again, I I, okay. I didn't have those exact notes, so I, I could be wrong on that. But um, you know, and and having worked, I've been just privileged to work the last uh, 20 years at at two of Stanley's finest designs, in, in my eyes, being Jasper and, and St George's. And um, anytime I go play other facilities, you always resonate with those you know how his par threes are at all his different facilities those are in, in my view kind of the teeth of his of his golf courses obviously the bunkering and, and hitting those shots where he wants you to hit them but um, the par threes were always some of the toughest holes those par fours were um, I'm not saying straightforward but you 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 saw what you get there wasn't a lot of blind shots Stanley didn't like a lot of blind shots out there um, and then you know back in the day I think his, his par fives were, were difficult, they were tough, but when you, you bring it into today's world and, and just talking Jasper, or it's even, even St. George's, their par fives are, are obtainable now. Now, were they obtainable back in the 20s or you know, 30s when he was building these facilities? You know, probably not, but um, yeah, so I really appreciate you know, kind of chatting that, and it really flows into you know, talking about experiences and, and working with others. Um, I know your your most recent project with uh, Corin Crenshaw was was Winter Park, where you're residing right now in Florida. Um, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the most recent accolade here in 2022 was by Golfer's Choice as the best public nine-hole golf course uh, in the U.S., which is uh, another great feather in the cap. But yeah, just chat a little bit about more of that, and and you know working with uh, some of the greats, Tom Doak, uh, Bill Core, Ben Crenshaw. Uh, Rod Whitman uh, and Jim Rubino over the years and you know what did you learn from them what are some of the traits that you apply today and um, you know if you got any you know funny stories you'd like to share or what that best design was with them uh, I really appreciate you sharing that with the viewership sure um, just a, just a correction so uh, Winter Park was with Keith Reb and myself we have our own uh, design company Reb and John's Golf Design sorry about that so that wasn't actually with Green Crenshaw my last project uh with them was uh at kri in in new zealand okay um and um so yeah winter park was an interesting project for us that was actually our first uh, solo design uh job and that and it was with a municipality on completely dead flat ground in the heart of winter park and um you know we all we tried to do was really kind of as i mentioned already was just try to understand the goals and objectives of the city try to find out who plays the course who uses it what kind of the 
opportunity and constraints are. And we just tried to apply some some simple but tried and true architectural um, you know principles to the to the property and just really not try to create anything too flashy, too too expensive to maintain. They only have four guys maintaining that place. Um, it's a bunch of half cars out there. They cross the street six times. It's a really unique property. It's a very, very fascinating place for a golf course being so intimate with an urban setting. Um, it's literally just on the main street as well. So you can walk your with your bag down the main street and go have a pint and oh, that's some cool. hamburgers and whatever. Yeah, it's really neat. Um, and so, and so, and it's been a huge success and, um, we're just so proud of everything that the city has been able to accomplish with it. They, they went from losing $250,000 a year to now making $250,000 a year. And that was a turnaround in five years and they're, you know, they're completely packed. They, uh, we have to go back and start building more tees and expanding tees and we had to expand the parking lot just because it was just so popular. And, uh, so it's a really, really, um, you know, good story behind municipal golf and how, um, you know, how if you put the right kind of course in the right kind of place, how much of a, how much of an amenity it can actually be to a, to a city, um, and to its, and to its, and to its, um, to its users really, um, let alone the green space component of it and, and what have you. So, um, so yeah, that was, that was winter park. And then, and then, yeah, I've been very fortunate to work with uh, a variety of different architects uh, over the years and, and, and it's been a huge part of part of my education and, and learning experience and, and growth and um, I've taken you know I'm constantly learning from them you know Bill Kaur and Ben Crenshaw has just been an unbelievable mentors uh, uh, to me and um, been so supportive and um, you know they're all very they're all very similar in their approach to golf course architecture whether that's like you mentioned, Tom Doak or Corn Crenshaw or Jim Urbina or Rob Whitman, they all come from the same school of design, um, which is essentially the Pete school, the Pete Dye school of design, which is a design build hands-on approach. Um, you know, and that's, that's where, where I feel that you get your best product. And I think some of the biggest takeaways that I've, I've, I've taken from, from those individuals, um, you know, is really allowed the detail work to take place and evolve in the field. Um, you know, don't try to, don't try to figure everything out and micro detail it in advance on plan because you've got to leave room for evolution and serendipity to occur in the field. And, 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 you know, if you're too rigid in your thinking on, it's supposed to be like this, then I think you might be missing opportunities and not being open to, uh, evolution and changes that, that, you know, could pop up. And so, you know, uh, you know, being open to this and recognizing this is, 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 has been part of my training with, with these guys is, 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 you know, just know when to, we know when to stop, you know, and that's the other thing is, is restraint, you know, um, know, you know, know when, know when you're overcooking something, know when you need to stop and let it simmer. We always say to let it simmer. So when you're building a golf hole in the field, you know, sometimes you're, you're, you're so focused on the hole that you're building. That you you forget to step back, right, and, and and take a look at it with a fresh perspective. So, um, stepping away from from a golf hole and maybe coming back to it in a day later or in the morning or in the evening at different light, different times, and always just being collaborative and open to, to other people's thoughts and ideas and opinions, really helps uh, eventually build the best golf hole, right? And then then you layer on the details 
uh, slowly. Okay. So, um, so that that would be one thing that I that I took away from then. Um, you know, restraint, nuance. Um, you know, don't don't also don't don't mistake a good site with a good client as well, right? Because that's another factor. Is is the client component is a, is 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 huge in this because you're a lot of times uh, people mistake that golf architects are building what they want. Not necessarily the case because you got to remember that a client has also given you their direction, their directives, their, their goals and objections, and and, a, and, a, and a, they're the client. They're the ones paying you, right? And so, so there's a there's a balance there too, right? And if you come across a project or a client that may not fit your uh, your style, your beliefs, or your your philosophy in golf architecture, it's okay to say no. You say, look, maybe I'm not the right fit for this project or okay. for this ground, right? Um, and that's okay. And, and so that's another thing that I've certainly learned from them is it's, it's okay to walk away and say no, um, because you may not be the right fit for that project or that client. And, um, and I think that's an important thing because there are other architects out there that may be a better fit. And, and, and I will be the first to suggest those other architects, because I think at the end of the day, we all just want to build the best golf possible. And, um, and there's different flavors of golf out there, right? It's like there's different flavors of ice cream. That's for a reason. It's very subjective, and um, and every every class of player has different preferences. You know, like you said earlier in the podcast, you know, enjoyable and fun is certainly a um, you know a common thread that you want across all kind of genres of golf course. Because at the end of the game, day, it is a game. Uh, but sometimes the objective of the client is to build a ch- the hardest championship golf course they possibly can because they want to host some sort of tour event, right? And, and in fast case, we say, well, look, we're not, it's not really who, you know, the, the golf kind of courses that we provide. But I would suggest, you know, this person or this person, he might be able to fulfill those needs better than us, right? And so knowing, knowing what kind of golf best fits you, I think, was, was, a, was a very important um, part of the evolution for, for my thinking. And, um, awesome. And some, some great experiences there. Um, you know, Riley, let's talk a little bit about can golf in, in your hometown. And, um, you know, I know that's just recently kind of opened up and just how it came to fruition and, and who you're working with. And, um, yeah, just tell us a little bit more about can golf. Sure, yeah. So uh, it's the, uh, the brainchild of uh, CBS broadcaster Luke Alvey, who also lives in Canmore. And being such a small industry, the golf industry, you know, him and I became friends over the years. He lives, you know, six or seven blocks away from each other. And, um, you know, he's always had this dream of, of creating a, a, an entertainment kind of facility, an indoor golf simulator, you know, experience, bar, restaurant, you know, parties kind of thing. Um, in Canmore to, to, to kind of help uh, give more exposure to the game of golf, bring in new players, bring in young kids, uh, something for seniors, something, you know, we have a great league night and just, just all around, just kind of offer uh, a different kind of golf experience uh, in Canmore, especially over the winters when, uh, you know, you can't play. And so, you know, it's got everything from, uh, like I said, league night to club fitting to, you know, a teaching pro to, to everything, right? And we have Christmas parties and, stag parties and corporate events and all that kind of thing great food and so it's just kind of a hub for 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 lovers of golf um to to come together we got five simulators um all sorts of different golf courses you can play and um any other sports available like can you do like football or baseball i know some of these simulators out there um you can do other sports is is this available at can golf as well or is it just strictly you know what your, your, your facilities 
I don't know. I don't know. I think you can. I think once you have the hardware set up, I think you can you can kind of bring in all sorts of different software. I know there's there's lots of different go- games you can play within golf, whether that's uh, target practice or long drive competition or you know, even even play uh, golf courses that, that don't exist. There's a lot of fun games for kids there as well, like putting courses, um, all sorts of things. But um, Nice and refreshing, yeah, no, kind of doing that outside of golf architecture. Nice little new uh, yeah. venture for you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And, and, and you know, Luke's, Luke gets all the credit for, for, for getting us off the ground and, and, and just bringing, he just brought me into the to the fold. Uh, you know, I feel lucky to, to partner with him and, uh, Bob Paley out of, uh, out of Kananaskis and uh, Ian Baker Finch is an investor as well. And, um, you know, and, and we have a, a good group of, of golf, uh, passionate golf people that are kind of behind it. And, and, uh, and, and so far it's done really well. And it's very exciting kind of offering for Canmore to, to have. We had the superintendent's conference there, um, the, the uh, Canmore's property Conf- uh, manager's conference there in uh in november and they they booked the whole place out and loved it and so you know it's just kind of a something different for canmore and um and and it's and it's been a huge hit whether you're you know like the league night we had to, we had to double the amount of uh league night That's like, awesome. nights that were occurring so yeah it's fun it's it's new it just opened in, in uh in september and uh we're looking forward to um to getting a full year under our belt and and and, and growing in canmore awesome Oh, thanks for sharing a little bit of that. I haven't quite uh, checked it out, but, you know, I think there's a lot of people that, you know, may not uh, enjoy the minus 35 degree weather in, in the mountains in the wintertime, you know, whether it's skiing or out there uh, enjoying nature. So it's nice to have that, that kind of added uh, venture. They can go in and play golf, work on their skills and, and kind of keep that game in check uh, throughout the winter. So, you know, one of the last things we'll do today, uh, some quick fire questions before we wrap up the podcast. So, um, if you're ready, we'll, we'll dive right into it. Question number one, Riley, top five favorite golf courses you've played? Let's go Royal Melbourne, St. Andrews, Old Course, Lahinch, Perry. I mean, it's Valley Neal, Pasatiempo, Jasper. Let's go Jasper. Let's go Jasper. I love Jasper. I love coming to visit you guys. Uh, in your opinion, uh, the top five golf course designs in Canada? You know, I think Cabot Links and Cabot Cliffs were very important to, to Canadian golf architecture. I, I think I think that kind of set a, a, a new bar. But you can't go wrong with any of Stanley Thompson's big five, really. You know, Capilano, Jasper, Banff, St. George's, Highlands Links, those are all solid. Top five golf course designs in the U.S.? NGLA, Cypress Point, Sand Hills, Shore Acres, Yale Golf Club. Yale Golf Club. Club. I love Yale. That is such a cool place. Have you been out there? I have not, no. Uh, it's a, a C.B. McDonald, Seth Rainer gem at, at the University of Yale, but the elevation changes and the the boldness of the architecture is, is quite impressive. Definitely worth uh, checking it out if you're in on the list for sure. Uh, top five golf courses outside North America. Old course. Dawson. Royal Melbourne. Yeah, I mean it's the it's the gold standard for art architecture, right? The the, the subtle nuances. You know, Royal Melbourne. I mean that place is special. I mean I love quirky ones too. I love Prestwick. I love North Barrett. 
I love Armbrugal Dunes. Uh, I love Macrahanish Old. All the hinges up there for me. I mean, yeah, let's go with those. Awesome. That'd be pretty lucky. Sounds like pretty lucky to play some some great facilities in different parts of the world. That's awesome. Uh, who is your favorite course architect? Yeah, I'll go with Alex McKenzie. Uh, rolls into the next question. Who's the GOAT, the greatest of all time? From an architectural well, standpoint. You know, because golf architecture is such an evolution, it's hard to, to, to kind of say what I mean. Like, old Tom Morris kicked it all off, so it's kind of hard to argue with nope. him being the GOAT. But then Colt took took it to another level and kind of set the standards that ever, that the McKenzie's of the world used. So, <laughs> I'm sorry to... Sorry to diffuse that question. Let's go with uh, Old Tom Morris, then Colt, and then McKenzie. Okay, awesome. No, fair <laughs> enough. Well, it's tough, right? You can you can have those conversations and the arguments. No, for sure. Uh, what's the hardest uh, golf hole you've ever played? Oh man, let's. You know, they're all difficult for. You know, I remember playing hole ten at Crystal Downs in Michigan, and putting into the bunker uh, off the green. But I would say the next hole on hole 11, I think they've done work on it recently, but that was a difficult hole to even hold your ball on. So one of those two holes, perhaps. Okay. I don't know. There's so many. <laughs> How many holes of golf you played in one day? Oh, 30. I don't go more than 36. No, that's it? I know you like to walk uh, a lot, so you're walking all the time, I, right? So. I like to hang out there, too. It cuts into your beer drinking time on the patio at the, at the club. Uh, favorite uh, PGA Tour player? Let's go with Bubba Watson. I, I like I like how he plays a, a more of a feel game over a mathematical game. Favorite LPGA Tour player? Got to go with Brooke Henderson. Of course. Yep. Uh, your best 18-hole score? 75. I've, I've shot that a few times. Whereabouts? I don't think. Well, just recently at uh, Riviera, that was uh, impressive. That was kind of a nice. That was kind of nice. Yeah. Um, old course, St. Andrews, um, Valley Neal, a couple different places. Awesome. You know what, George? To tell you the truth, I don't really play much stroke play. Um, we we always play match play. So, um, you know, scorecard golf is, is 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 something that I actually don't play too often. So. Well, hopefully, maybe I'll uh, I'll draw you in the the Jasper Bamp Inner Club um, here in 2022 if we get it back and going. Uh, what is your uh, your go-to post-round beverage? On a, on a hot day, uh, a nice craft IPA. If it's a cold day, a nice Guinness, especially if you're in Ireland. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> well, hey Riley, I, I truly appreciate uh, your time here today. Um, you know, kind of divulging into the the architectural world and talking a little bit about your experiences and philosophies and, and you know, answering some of these quick fire questions. Um, you know, thank you very much for, for taking time. I know you have a busy, there's no real off season for you. There's just, it's just busy year round and, and taking time out of your, your day here in Florida. I'm, I'm sure I'm host, holding you up from an afternoon round of golf here perhaps, but uh, you know what? Thanks for the help with the PG of Alberta and our education uh, series. It's ever evolving. I'm sure our listeners today, um, thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you a little bit better, you know, being from Canmore, um, understanding a little bit more of the architectural side of the business. And yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Anything else you want to add out there to, uh, to the listeners and, uh, across the lens? 
No, I think uh, I think we're good. I appreciate appreciate the uh, conversation. It was fun. It was awesome. Well, I look forward to uh, hopefully doing this again and all the best in Winter Park. And uh, we'll see you back up in in Alberta here in the coming months. Thanks again. You got Anybody it. Anybody else? Thanks. Have a great day, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Mm-hmm.